And before we get into any new material, let me ask some questions. When you go to the movie theater and you're preparing to watch a movie, what emotions are you feeling? Don't answer out loud. When you are, are sitting at home and you're uh, looking for something on YouTube, what emotion are you sensing? When you're sitting down in a favorite chair with a nice uh, lamp behind you and you've got a novel uh, that's been recommended to you, what emotion are you feeling? When you pick up the sports magazine, what emotion are you feeling? When you pick up the Bible to read it, what emotion are you reading? Or are you feeling? You see, depending on the source and depending on the setting, our emotions vary, don't they? And we we come to the text, whether it's a sports text um, or a literary text, uh, poetry, novel, history. Um, we come to it, and we have certain expectations, right? And we have certain feelings that, um, if you're like me, uh, certain foods will begin to make my mouth water. Okay, I I know what I'm about to enjoy, and the same way, uh, the same thing can be said about our reading material, or our watching, our viewing material. When we come to the revelation to John, there are a number of genres that we will encounter. And we probably will feel a little differently about the various kinds of genre. So let's talk about what genre is and what it isn't. I'll get to um, a definition on the next slide. But the revelation to John presents itself as an apocalypse. And that's made popular in recent years uh, by movies and so forth. Uh, a prophecy and a letter. Now, if we were to pick up Paul, um, and uh, typically we would say, okay, we're going to read a letter today. One of Paul's letters to the Corinthians or to the Galatians or uh, to the Romans or, or, or what ha uh, whatever. If we picked up a gospel, okay, we're going to read um, a, a brief biographical sketch with the intended purpose of, of presenting Jesus as the Messiah. And it will be selective. You know, the gospel writer won't give us everything, but will give us certain things. Um, if we picked up the book of Proverbs to read our chapter for the day, today's the 30th, so we would be reading chapter 30 of, of Proverbs. Uh, we will come to it with a, with a different understanding, with a different intent, with a different feeling. When we come to the revelation of John, we're going to have mixed feelings because we're going, to, we're going to have an apocalyptic genre and a prophetic genre and a literary or um, a, a letter genre, an epistolary genre, and we're going to change as we see those things. Um, let me give you a challenge. Sit down, open your Bible, ask, and just, just think through how you're feeling as you're opening your Bible. Uh, viscerally, what what am I feeling right now as I open God's Word? And then read 
the book of the revelation to John and monitor your feelings as you go through the book. There may be times when, when you will say in the back of your mind, well, why didn't this church get it? Or, wow, God is like that? Or, man, pity the people on earth during that time. Or, come, wow, here comes Jesus. And pretty soon, you know, there, there's, there will be such a variety of feelings that you may come out of your seat, even uh, even your easy chair. So read the book. It'll take you about an hour and a half probably to read it. 22 chapters, depending how quickly you read and whether you read a, a paraphrase or a version or, um, you know, whatever. Sit down and read the book. Monitor your feelings. Monitor how you're responding to the word of God. It will be a spiritual experience. All right. The opening line declares this literary piece to be the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis, Iesu Christu in Greek, understood to be an objective genitive. Now, that's the way I'm understanding it. Not not all the scholars will agree. Okay, I, um, okay but you're not being taught by all those guys, so you're going to get my version. Um, <laughs> which means I take it to be the revelation about Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Which then means that God gave Christ an unveiling of himself. Notice that. Because we see that in the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Isaiah with the servant songs. Um, We see it in the Gospels with Christ's seeming reticence to proclaim himself. Uh, Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, that he came as a servant. But then, you know, what do we read? Uh, What happened to my Bible? But in Philippians 2 and verses 9 and following, what does Paul say about Christ? Could you tell us what an objective genitive or at least a genitive I, is? Okay, I, I, will, I will come back to that, yes. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Because he humbled himself. He fulfilled his mission as the suffering servant. And because Jesus did that, God has exalted him. Okay? So, um, yes. So, in Latin, in uh, Greek in many languages they'll have a, a nominative case which is the subject case they'll have a genitive case which is the about case this is about somebody um, and it serves other purposes as that they've got a dative case which is two or four people an, an accusative case the action is on them um, evocative case here John and, okay, so that's, that's evocative. You're calling out somebody's name. So for um, an objective genitive, then the name Jesus Christ in the genitive case becomes the object of the revelation. This is an unveiling 
of Jesus Christ. Okay? Thank you. Now, um, so I have Philippians 2, 5 through 11 down, but turn back to Isaiah 53. I had the privilege of writing uh, a paper uh, in my program at DTS on the servant songs. I looked around the room, and when Dr. Bramer offered us to pick our topics, I thought, man, I want the servant songs of Isaiah. I, I knew very little about them, but I thought, man, that's what I want to write on. And nobody was saying that. So I quick jumped on that wagon and said, I want the servant songs, and I'm so glad I did. So Isaiah 52, 53 is one of them. Notice how it ends. After Jesus is presented to us um, as a vicarious sufferer um, for the sins of his people. Notice at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Sounds a little bit like Philippians 2, doesn't it? 9 through 12, where God exalts him. Let's keep reading. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the mighty, excuse me, with the many, and he shall divide the, the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this is a revelation about Jesus. And uh, that's the point, that because Jesus served as a suffering servant, God now exalts him as the Davidic king, coming king. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, you remember how Jesus prayed? Verse 4, he's talking to God the Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And skip down to verse 24. Um, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So we're getting this sense that there's more to the gospel than God loves us and wants us to have a wonderful life. And he sent his son to be um, the lamb of God that takes away our sin and gives us eternal life. There's more to the story. There's this humiliation of Jesus and then there's this exaltation of Jesus. The book of the Revelation to John gives us the exaltation. It gives us the final chapter of 
of biblical um, revelation. And so we will see all of that as we get into the 22 chapters of this book. Okay, comment or a question? Okay, so what is genre? Well, it's a category of artistic composition characterized by a particular style, a form, or a content. In other words, it's a kind of literature. So what kind of literary composition is the revelation to John? Are there multiple genres in the book? Do the various genres dictate how the book is to be read? Yes, 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 and yes. The revelation to John is the first ancient literary work to be designated by its author as an apocalypse. Now, we've got this accepted scholarly definition of apocalyptic literature. I've given it to you back when we surveyed uh, prophecy and, and eschatology and so forth. Uh, I'm going to read through it again, but uh, I'm going to get to a more simplified definition in just a moment. Okay, so let's let's hear what the scholars say. Um, Apocalypse is a genre uh, of revelatory literature with a narrative framework. Okay, so so a story is being told in apocalyptic. All right, we got that. In which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient. So there's an angel talking to a person. Okay, we got that. So we've got a narrative. We've got an angel talking to a person. And this angel discloses a transcendent reality, which is both temporal, insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and it's also spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural world. So we've got, <laughs> let's put it all together. We've got a narrative. We've got a story being told. An angel's talking to a person, and the person is revealing a reality that's beyond what we normally see and can sense. And that reality has both time and space involved in it. Okay. Now, some apocalypses um, uh, have an otherworldly journey. And guess what? The revelation to, the, to John has this otherworldly journey in it. Cool. So we're getting, you know, we're getting the whole apocalyptic experience when we read the Revelation to John. So, the Revelation to John is revelatory. It has a narrative framework mediated by an angel to a human recipient. That would be John. It discloses a transcendent reality which is both temporal. It envisages eschatological salvation. So, as we read through the book, we, can, we will see time markers. We will see things that take place in time. We will read about 1,260 days or, or uh, three and a half years, a year, years and a half. You know, all of those things, 12, um, or, or, and um, by months as well as days and years. It involves another supernatural world, and it includes another world journey. So, I'm sorry. Yes, okay. When it talks about the supernatural world, is it talking about the beasts and things like that? My guess is no, because that would be our world. Um, he's somewhat considered supernatural and uh, be, because 
he suffers. But these beasts have horns that yes. our world doesn't have. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, uh, so we will want to understand what's being told us figuratively about the beast, about the Antichrist, and we'll we'll talk about that. The supernatural world probably would be the new Jerusalem, and the new heaven and the new earth that come to us. Okay, so the revelation to John distinguishes itself among typical Jewish apocalyptic literature. In other words, the revelation to John is not the only apocalypse that was written. There were other apocalypses that were written. They're not inspired of God. They're not in holy writ. Um, uh, Scholars, in, in my humble opinion, make more of them than they ought to make of them. But that's what scholars do. And you are one. Basically, scholars need something to do. Yes, yes. The the, uh, revelation to John presents itself as a circular letter. So we've got then this initial. Um, vision of Christ and Christ is what? He's standing among the uh, lampstands which represent the seven churches and he has a message, he has an authoritative message for these churches and then in chapters 2 and 3 the head of the churches addresses each church with the message so it presents itself as a circular letter. We get to the last chapter and he wraps everything up with an invitation. Okay? So there are epistolary features, there are prophetic features, and there are apocalyptic features in the book. So in addition to being apocalyptic, the revelation to John is prophetic. And several times the book is described as a prophecy. Look at chapter 1 and and verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So it, it, it presents itself as a prophecy. These are words of prophecy. Uh, Look at chapter 22. Go to the last chapter. In verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And I would understand that verse to be words from the Lord Jesus himself. Um Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So over and over again, it it is described as being a prophecy. Verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And then he says, if you add to it or you take away from it, God will take his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. We don't mess with God's word. We leave it intact, and we take all of it as God's word. Now, John effectively then serves Christ 
in this last role of his life, I believe, as a prophetic amanuensis. He's taking down the revelation of Jesus that's being given to him through the angel. He's writing it down. He's recording this revelation of Christ. He writes encouragement to the saints and warnings to the wicked. Besides being apocalyptic and prophetic, the revelation to John is epistolary. The book contains a prologue, an epilogue, that frame the whole. The book also has seven subletters within the work. Between the prologue and the epilogue is the recorded extended visionary experience of John. So when, when you sit down, you've carved out your hour and a half to read the book of the Revelation to John. You're going to be reading apocalyptic, prophetic, and epistolary literature. And it may strike you differently as you read through it. And that's good. That's okay. Um, the various genre of, of literature uh, bring about different feelings from us and different thoughts and different responses. Let the book do that in your own reading. The best conclusion for understanding the nature of the revelation to John, says Patterson, who wrote a commentary on Revelation. He teaches at um, the Master's Seminary in California. And I, I find Patterson's work on Revelation to be quite helpful. He says, is to see this book as a prophetic circular letter, which not infrequently makes use of apocalyptic imagery and device. Okay, well, let me rephrase that. So the way I see it is that the revelation to John is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which predicts future events, which will finish world history. This unique inspired scripture is packaged in the format of a letter sent to seven contemporary churches for the benefit of all, including us today, and saints that follow us until these events take place. Comment or question? So once again, I return us to how shall we read the Revelation to John? We need to read it attentively because the readers are told to be attentive. We need to read it with awe and worship. We need to read it with the anticipation of the coming victory and hence the hope. We need to read with silent terror for mankind. We need to read it thinking, I need to separate from fashionable wickedness in my day and age. Yes, Linda? Uh, that makes me think back to our discussion last week of fear. Mm -hmm. Silent terror for mankind, now that's true fear. Yes, for those who are yes. Yes, and they will be in true fear. They will, uh, as we will see, um, run to the mountains and try and hide from the wrath of God and the Lamb. Fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of God and the Lamb. It can't be done. <laughs> yes. We need to read the book with a, with 
approval of divine justice. We need to look to Jesus as we read, and we need to accept the invitation of life that's at the end of the book. Okay, so that's that's genre. Let's talk about structure. So there are some issues. Um, can you read that, or should I change the font color on the... I, I should change it, shouldn't I? Okay, well, we have a few slides here. Uh, bear with me today. I'll try not to do that to you. Um, so there are three weighty issues about structure. First, do the repeating pairs of heavenly scene followed by an earthly vision formulate a literary structure? So we will encounter this as we read the book. There'll be a heavenly scene, and then there'll be an earthly vision. So should we structure the book? Should we say that that's an, an organizing principle in the book? Secondly, is the visionary material cyclical? Does it repeat? Does it come back around again? Or is it progressive? Does it, is it linear and move uh, through from the beginning to the end? And then the third issue about structure where in the text does the content change from history to prophecy? Okay, well, let's deal with the last question first. Some have proposed the subject changes from historical uh, to, to the future in the middle of the book. For instance, at maybe 1119 or at 1420. Let's go to 1119. Um, in 11.15 and following, we have the seventh trumpet. And I'm going to show you a slide in just a moment about the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments so that you have a, a better perspective on, on those cycles of judgments. But in chapter 11, we've got this seventh trumpet. And then in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes and lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And then we get into um, a heavenly scene. A, 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 yes, a great sign appeared in heaven regarding Israel and the devil and so forth. And after that, um, the beast, and after that, the false prophet. So there are these visions that are being given. And so someone might say, well, everything up to, to 1119 is, is history, and from 1119 on, we're going to see the future things. Okay, it, that's a possibility. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think we've got other um, time markers, if you will, in the book, and I would go to chapter 1 and verse 19. Now, mind you, um, this is uh, this has been a favorite point of prophecy teachers in the last hundred years or so, but it is going out of favor with modern um, uh, teachers and scholars, and they're beginning to uh, minimize the importance of this verse. Those frustrating scholars, huh? <laughs> okay. But let's read it. Write, so Jesus is telling John, write therefore the things that you have seen, 
those that are and those that are to take place after this. So it appears from a simple reading of the verse that there are three, three categories of things that John is supposed to write about. He's supposed to write about the things that he's seen. What has he just seen? The first vision of Christ as the head of the church. So that's, that's what he has seen. Those things that are, and that would appear to be the messages of Christ to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. And then those things that are to take place after this. Now turn over to chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, that is after the messages to the seven churches, with Laodicea being the last church, after this, John says that he looks, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, what must take place after this. So he's on this, you know, one of these heavenly journeys, okay, that some, um, some apocalypses will have. And John um, takes this journey. So after this, after the messages to the seven churches, John sees um, heaven opened. And verse 1 of chapter 6. Well, let's go to chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written. And so there's that great question. Well, who's worthy to open the scroll? And, and all of that. That's answered. And then Jesus is alone worthy to to break the seals of the judgment scroll. 6 and verse 1 now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. So it, it appears that we're moving into future content. Fred? Would it be correct to say that those who believe that uh, the future starts either at chapter 19 or chapter 14, do they tend to be post-millennial? Yes, they would tend not to be pre-millennial. Yes, yes. Okay, so there are three groups of things revealed. Those which John had seen, those which are, and those which would come after. In this view, the book reads progressively from chapter 1 through to the end. It allows for a few historical flashbacks uh, according to Patterson. Um, so, for instance, when we get to chapter 12 and we've got this rather enigmatic figure of the dragon um, posturing himself before woman Israel as she's about to give birth to the Messiah in order to devour her child. Okay, well, that's already taken place. Okay? Because Jesus has already come and he's been incarnated and he's done his suffering servant work, okay? So um, that would be more of a flashback. But then chapter 12 goes on to say what the devil will do during the tribulation period. Do you see uh, the sixth seal as a flashback when all the mountains and islands are moved out of their place? As a flashback to... Or how, how does it fit in there if it were sequential? Okay, 
Can you uh, hold yeah. that question? Because I, we're going to get to the, the slide, and I'll, I'll address that. Thank you, Chief. So the phrase, after these things, or after this, occurs often in the Revelation, 119, 41, 71, 79, 912, 15, 5, If we just take it in its normal meaning, then it appears that we're making progress through the narrative of the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? So some postulate the revelation to John to be cyclical in its structure. They understand the series of judgments to be parallel. Um, especially they would say that about the last two series, uh, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, basically describing the same events. This may be called the recapitulation theory. It doesn't matter what you call it, but Kistemacher is, is giving us a new word. So, and you may read the book this way. So look at the judgments here. We've got the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Now, on one slide, it's awfully hard to give you enough data to really compare what's going on with these judgments. So I've intentionally been brief. But guess what? You're going to read the book anyway, and, and you're going to follow all of this. Um, okay, so look at the seal judgments. We've got a rider that goes forth to conquer. Then a rider takes peace away from the earth. Then there's inflation on bread, these exorbitant prices on, on uh, wheat and barley. Then one quarter of the population dies. Then the martyrs cry out for justice. Then there's a quake of the universe. So I didn't say earthquake. This would be a universe quake. And then there's fire, thunder, or there are fire, thunder, and lightning. Look at the trumpet judgments. There is hail. Um, and well, there are hail and fire thrown to the earth. One third of the sea is made blood. The creatures die. The ships um, will uh, be sunk and so forth. Human, lives will be, uh, human life will be lost. One third of the fresh water is made bitter. One third of the skylights are darkened. Locusts come out of the pit and they sting people and they've got this five-month uh, sickness that people suffer because of their stings. Then horsemen will kill one-third of mankind. And the seventh trumpet announces the, the coming of the heavenly kingdom. Then we go to the bold judgments. There are sores that are given to people. The sea is made blood. Not just one-third, but all of the sea is made blood. Um, again, we have springs or, or rivers, fresh water, made blood. Now, Back in the trumpet judgments, they were made bitter and poisonous. Here, they're made blood and repulsive. The next bold judgment, the sun scorches people. In the trumpet judgments, um, there is more darkness. So I'm seeing differences. Um, I, I see some similarities in terms of parts of life that are affected in the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. But there are differences as to uh, what's actually taking place. Uh, the next bold judgment, the beast kingdom, the Antichrist kingdom, is darkened. 
Then there's a gathering of armies. And then there's an earthquake and destruction. So it would appear to me, in my uh, my uh, understanding of the book, that the judgments are progressive, that they get even more intense. Whereas early on we see one-third of this or one-third of that, that later we're going to see all of it. And it becomes more and more severe. And God is meeting out judgment um, intentionally to get people to acknowledge him as creator and God, worthy of their allegiance and their trust and their obedience. Okay, question or comment? Gene? Yeah, that, that seal judgment again, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and mm-hmm. every mountain and island mm-hmm. had moved out of their place. That's a lot more than fire, thunder, and lightning on number seven. Okay. It's almost like it, that's the same kind of description you have for the end, for the very end. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. So, yes, I, I, I grant you. Um, I think some of these may be more comprehensive than what, obviously, than what I've been able to put down here. Um, how many times can the Lord destroy the, the world? <laughs> okay. Um, and, and we've got the series of judgments. Read it. Understand it. Um, yes. Matt? That's, that's not like poetic, prophetic language. In terms of, go ahead. You know, the sky darkening, is falling to the earth, all, all that, you know, island being fled away, heaven being rolled up. You see that in Isaiah, Ezekiel, mm-hmm. where God uses almost that same kind of language against Babylon, against Egypt. And it's more of a, it's poetic. It's a poetic, prophetic language. It doesn't, I think it's more, like you said, I don't think God's going to destroy this over and over and keep doing this. Yeah. It's, it's he's saying these authorities, the heavens, the stars will be thrown down. There's a whole shifting going on in the authorities in the realm of heaven. Yeah. These things are happening. Okay, and I think you're I think you're really onto something. In some of these places, that's it. I I would completely agree with what you said. In other places, it seems to be very specific. Uh, topological changes will take place. Universal. Uh, changes will take place. In fact, as we know from from Second Peter, the whole earth is going to burn up in, with, with fire, right? Okay, so this earth's not going to last. Glenn? If one star fills earth, from what we know now about how big they are and how far they are away, it would destroy the entire yes. earth. <laughs> so, um, stars falling from heaven, could represent authority figures, could represent um, satanic um, demons mm-hmm. that were previously great authority mm-hmm. figures in mm-hmm. heaven, or it could represent um, flashes of lightning and comets and much smaller heavenly beings that are going to pockmark the earth with yes. destruction. Yes. Um, so a star is a light in the sky from a human perspective. Mm-hmm. And a light from the sky can be what we think of as a star, which is really a sun. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a huge comet or a meteor 
or something like that that is going to create great light as it gets in the atmosphere and creates falling light. The Gulf of Mexico, scientists believe, is the pockmarket of a huge piece of rock that hit the Earth and carved out the entire Gulf of Mexico, which if that's what really happened, that would have changed the climate on the entire Earth instantly. So we will see in the book both of these things. We will see, as in chapter 12, uh, the dragon with his tail sweeps away one third of the stars. And I think that would, would go more toward the angels that fell with Satan. But we will also see the topographical, geological changes uh, as we read the book. Okay. So the progressive or linear approach discerns a continuous development from the beginning to the end of the apocalypse. And I think this would be the natural hearing of the reading of the revelation to John among the churches. As you know, the letter carrier either himself reads it or he gives it to a reader at each church and that reader reads it to the people, I think they would probably naturally understand the narrative to be a progressive story from beginning to end. All right, let's talk about content here. So the content is quite involved. And I, I believe I've mentioned this to you before. I think I gave some of this to you on that handout uh, a number of weeks ago. But in the book of Revelation, we have heavenly scenes, chapter 4, chapter 5, um, chapter 12, chapter 13, well, not 13, but 12 is, um, 15, 19, okay. We have explanatory visions where we're being given an understanding about what we're looking at, and then we have enactments of judgments. And again, if as I keep those things in my mind as I read the book, then I'm understanding, okay, well, now we're moving into this. Or um, look out world because here comes another enactment of judgment. So as you keep those things in mind, I think it'll help you to appreciate the content and, and receive the content. The heavenly scenes, explanatory visions, and enactments of judgments flesh out the book and should be recognized as legitimate literary features with substantive content which contribute naturally to the message of the book. So God is communicating to us a message, and he's using these scenes and visions and, uh, and judgments in order to communicate the message of the book, just as he did to the seven churches. The heavenly scenes portray the holy majesty of God and the earned worthiness of the Lamb to judge mankind. Why, why would I say earned worthiness? on Christ's part to dispense judgment? Yes, because he provided the sacrifice for all people to be reconciled to God, and people who refused the sacrifice received justly the judgment. Rewarding the faithful saints and condemning apostate mankind with a view to God and the Lamb finally dwelling among sanctified people in the New Jerusalem. 
the explanatory visions focus on Christ, the faithful angels, the saints in spiritual conflict with the forces of evil, who are are the Antichrist, the false prophet, false religion, and the center of false world order. Christ and the saints are victorious and reign while Satan is bound. When released, he instigates a final rebellion. The New Jerusalem facilitates a living eternal communion between God, the Lamb, and redeemed mankind. The enactments of judgments are the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, the defeat of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the armies of the earth, the binding of Satan, and the judgment of the resurrected dead. Okay. Now, let's pause for a moment. We've covered a lot of ground here, structure and content and so forth. So let's read the Revelation to John naturally. And I know it's mysterious, and I know it's enigmatic, and I know it's prophetic, and it's apocalyptic. I I understand all of that. But you can understand this book. God gave a revelation about his son to an, an apostle to record it for the churches. Um, He didn't go to the bother of giving us the revelation in order to mystify us. The very word revelation means something's being revealed. Truth is being revealed. You say, well, it sure seems mysterious to me when I read it. Okay, I get that. But, as you read it, ask God to help you understand it. Understand the message. The details sometimes can be very, very confounding. And we may come up with various interpretations regarding some of those details. But get the message. Read read the, the book in order to get the message. We will read it from the beginning to the end in just a normal, linear fashion. If if you feel that there's there's more of a cyclical approach between these judgments, okay, just tolerate me. Tolerate us as as we work our way through. As we read, we will appreciate the kaleidoscope of information that's given through these scenes and these visions and these judgments. And all of those things communicate the wonderful, yet solemn, fateful, and comprehensive message. So the book of the Revelation to John is not for the faint of heart. And it's not, you know, it's not for people, uh, the, the people in what we might term to be more liberal assemblies, and denominations uh, who think God is just a really nice kind of grandfather type of God. <laughs> Matt? Do you think a lot of the confusion is because it's taken out of context? I, okay. saying, I think the context is the first entry. Mm-hmm. Okay, the term in the very first verse is translated soon or shortly. It's mm-hmm. toxic, mm-hmm. which means with speed. We get our word tachycardia, something rapid. Chapter verse three it says that it's uh, it's 
Engus. Kairos, the time is near. Kairos, Engus. Mm -hmm. Time there is, is the word for not tick, tick, tick of a clock, but the moment that's pregnant. And the word near there, Engus, is something that's imminent. It's right away. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, if, if Pastor Chuck was in the church and we we're all in there in the sanctuary, and an angel came down was to give him a message, and we're all sitting there and we hear it. And the angel gives us the message, the time is near. It's soon, it's about to happen soon. Mm -hmm. Right away, and toxic. Well, I don't think any one of us would think that that's another 2,000 years down the road. And I think the ambiguity comes from, we take it out of its context of the first century with those terms, and we, we keep pushing it. Every, every, if you read, if you study church history, every century, thought they were in the last days, and everyone keeps pushing it further and further ahead. That's what we're supposed to believe. <laughs> okay, so so Matt's raised a very good question, and again, this goes to the approaches for interpreting the book of the Revelation, and some will take it historically, as Matt is, is raising. You know, um, so uh, when we get to uh, the seven uh, mountains and so forth, Rome w would be the obvious candidate for, for uh, the reference there. Pompeii. But, you know, I take a futuristic approach. So I'm going to say the things that are Rome-like in that day refer to something that's in the future. So there are various approaches to the book of Revelation. And, um, and what, what I appreciate so much, Matt, about what you're saying is that the historical allusions illumine the text. And if you take a historical interpretation of it, very, very much so, but even if you take a futuristic approach, they still help us understand. And this goes back to one of the slides that you've shown earlier, is that, and what Matt said too, is so that could be speaking about that section of the book, and not the whole book. And then as you get to different sections, they could be different time frames. Yes, so so what we what we have to allow uh, to happen here is that given the fact that this is an apocalypse, okay, and that it's also prophetic, uh, God doesn't disclose everything, but he does disclose enough to get the message across. So, so let's learn. Let's let's go for the message, Mike. Well, I always go back to Matthew 24:44, which is, therefore you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Yes. So he came back and said, "You're not going to know anyway. So just be ready." Right. right. And I'm giving the scholar something to do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, Right. But it's it's within the canon, and the canon is is for the whole church. Go ahead, Glenn. This is not different from most prophecies in the Old Testament. 
in that they had a near time partial fulfillment mm -hmm. and there's specifics about it that the Messiah did not fulfill and some local figure we can argue about who it might have been there were for instance in Isaiah talking about what was going to happen to Israel within 100 or 150 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. and now we look back and say wow that is referring to the Messiah <laughs> but the Jews didn't see it as referring to the Messiah and they didn't tie it in at the time the Messiah came but most of the Christian church today looks at all these passages in Isaiah or Psalms or wherever and they see a near time partial fulfillment and maybe a later time partial fulfillment and then they see a, a future complete fulfillment so many of the prophecies God does things in similar ways but not identical ways down through history and many of the prophecies you can't tell whether they're referring to just the, the local temporal at that time closest fulfillment yes so for instance if we would turn if we would uh, turn to Genesis 3 you don't need to I'm going to read it for you uh, interestingly, at the fall of man, what does God do? First, he addresses the devil. Because you've done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Why didn't he say woman and man? Ask yourself that question. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. When does that complete bruising take place? The book of Revelation. Okay. And yet, are there times and places where Satan suffers defeats? Yes. What did Jesus say to his apostles after sending them out on a missions? trip and they come back Jesus said I saw Satan falling from heaven and he and Paul writes to the Romans you know uh, Satan will soon be crushed under your feet okay but it doesn't completely happen until not not just when he's put in the bottomless pit but when he's allowed to come out and that final insurrection and then he's cast into the lake of fire and then he's done. Okay? So, yes. Thank you, Glenn, for and meanwhile, that. Meanwhile, he's crawling on his belly. Mean, yes. Yes. Okay. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. And thank you, Lord, for the interest that this book brings uh, to us. Uh, the interest that we have in it. Lord, as we read it, help us to appreciate all of its features. Help us to appreciate the variety of content as well as genre. But Lord, help us to get the message. And uh, as a hearer of holy writ, of inspired scripture, may it do its transforming work in our lives. May we respond appropriately to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Um, 
which is fascinating. You start, you look at the temporal aspect of this. John was told not to measure the stuff in the outer court because that was for the Gentiles. You don't see anything written in Ezekiel yeah. about the outer court or the Gentiles. Okay. So they're 600 years apart mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. and they're both called up to heaven. They meet each other, and they go walking around together, and they write this stuff in Ezekiel verse 40 through 48, which is the third temple, the heavenly temple. And John is measuring it, and Ezekiel's writing it down. And you see this, and all of a sudden you're like, there's things that we don't necessarily put together. And then when you see that, you're like, that's fascinating. Interesting stuff. And yes, some of these things have been done before, or similar things to them have been done before. I'll look further at that. Thank you. It is fascinating stuff. Yeah. I'm so glad you guys are feeling better. And yeah, I, I have a bunch of stuff on my ear. You know, the sinus infection that blew my nose and up it went. And it did that once, and then like a day later, it like cleared out. And then did it the second time, it hasn't cleared out since. It's been about a, what, about a week, a week and a half. And I'm fighting with that. It's not that I can do about it. Oh, yeah, you got some recording. Oh, did I? 